This conversation was recorded as part of the University of Glasgow Spotlight podcast in April 2022. On it, Graeme Roy, Dean of External Engagement in the College of Social Sciences, spoke with Professor Petra Mayer about her research on economic inequalities and health outcomes. Welcome to the podcast, Petra. Hello, Graham. Now, a common theme throughout the podcast that we've been doing over the last year has been trying to understand the complex and multi-dimensional inequalities that exist in our society and what policy can do to help tackle them. We discussed issues such as housing, income inequalities, amongst others. Now, you're an expert in health inequalities and, and how that links through to the economy. Can you talk us through why understanding these links is so important in a UK, Scottish, European context? Yeah, I mean, especially in the UK, health inequalities are a huge concern. In Scotland in particular, poor health affects every aspect of people's lives, as you know, whether it's the ability to enjoy life as a private individual or our ability to be creative or to contribute to society through work or caregiving or volunteering our time for the common good. So we, we know that the UK has substantially lower life expectancy compared to our neighbouring countries. And it's also a very unequal country. As you know, the government's recent levelling up white paper addresses this to, to some degree and reiterated the goal that was first verbalised in 2018, a commitment to add five years of healthy, independent life by 2035, as well as narrowing the gap between the richest and the poorest areas by 2030. That sounds great, but it's a mammoth challenge. What's worth knowing there is that gains in UK life expectancy have been stalling and actually partially reversing since 2011. So this is long before COVID even hit. Uh, we'd gotten used to sort of ever increasing life expectancy, every generation living longer and healthier lives than the one before. But that is just no longer the case. And there are gaps between rich and poor that continue to widen. There's now really good evidence that austerity policies in particular were an important driver in this. And so how we deal with the current economic challenge is quite likely to affect how we see life expectancy trends evolve over the next next few years and the chances of meeting, meeting government targets there. The latest data show that in the 10% of most deprived areas, the average man won't get to celebrate his 74th birthday. And not only that, he'll spend 21 years in poor health. That's from about age 52, which given how close I am to that, is, is really early. <laughs> if you're a man in the 10% most affluent areas, you can live to expect a whole 10 years longer than that, and you enjoy 70 of your 83 years in good health. So it's a, it's a massive unfairness, as well as you know all the other consequences from that. So for those who, like me, are interested in the interface between health and the economy, Imagine the impact on productivity or labor market or the welfare system or children's options to pursue higher education if we really manage to raise average healthy life expectancy by, by those five years. And especially if we do that by shifting the bottom of the distribution. If instead of from age 52, you're, say, 62 when you first experience our long-term ill health. It's going to make a massive difference for older workers' employment prospects, for old-age poverty the functioning of the pension system, the need for formal and informal care, as well as NHS resources. But I should stress, I mean, this all sounds very um, economic focused. First and foremost, for me, this is a massive fairness issue. There's not, not much that is more precious than life, and especially life in good health. Yeah, and just picking up that point you mentioned about 
poverty and economic inequalities more generally and how they drive through to to health outcomes and those figures you were saying there about the differences between life expectancy and across income distribution are, are stark and, and really quite staggering. What do we know from the evidence about where the the key links are and barriers are between you know, health outcomes in the economy and, and, and vice versa? Yeah. So like poor health, poverty is pervasive and affecting all aspects of people's lives. So poverty is closely linked to pretty much all the main drivers of good physical and mental health. We know that the main modifiable factors are the things that you can actually do something about that increase our chances to live a long and healthy life are things such as access to quality education, financial stability, employment and good working conditions, decent homes, healthy surroundings, support for relationships and well-delivered public services. And living in poor areas, which you're much more likely to do if you're in poverty, just makes it much less likely that you go to an outstanding school or you will have fewer opportunities for finding good work and therefore financial stability. More of the housing around you will fail the decent home standard. Poor neighbourhoods are less safe. Lack of financial means that you can't participate in social and cultural opportunities and have access to good health care and also sort of those personal choices that people talk about, you know, healthy consumer choices are just much more difficult if you're in poverty. So, so all this is already really unequally distributed and then hits COVID and then hits the economic consequences of Brexit and many of those will have long running effects. So new poverty, disrupted education and work tra- trajectories and we fear that those might have lifelong impact, especially on younger people. I guess that's why my, in my research I'm so keen to try and prevent those effects from becoming some kind of multi-generational burden on top of the inequality that we already see. And you mentioned a key word there right at the end there, prevent. And the whole debate about prevention has dominated public sector reform debates in Scotland for at least a decade. The Christie Commission talked a lot about it. And I know from your own expertise as in systems science research, it would be quite useful just to explain to the audience what that is. Um, but one of the key things that comes from that is this emphasis on the importance of prevention and within that context of what you've just spoken around around health inequalities and poverty and economic outcomes what areas of preventative spend does your research tell you is is the most important okay i'll i'll tell you why there isn't one most important one if that's okay instead so we've seen that health inequalities are deep rooted and pervasive and have many non-health causes that are mutually interlinked So, for example, work and income and decent housing all influence health, but in turn, things like poor health might also affect your ability to work. So, as I say, there are many interdependencies in uh, an interconnected system. And also there are many actors, of course, who can either purposefully or accidentally influence inequalities. So when we see someone who struggles, say, in, in, in many areas of their lives, we tend to grapple them with questions of, should we tackle their housing problem? Is that the most important? Or is it employment first? Or is it maybe they need to ha- sort out their mental health problems first because, before they can sustain housing and employment? And often what we'll find is that we can't solve things in a disjointed manner. And that's at the individual level, but also at, say, the local area level. If you've got a, a deprived community, then you know just doing something about employment prospects might not address enough of the thing. It's not 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 the case that you can focus on sort of simple solutions necessarily. 
And then there is sort of complicated spatial and temporal dynamics to consider. So imagine if you were able to intervene with a deprived local area to make things better in some way, what would happen in the surrounding areas? Or if you intervene now, when would you expect to start to start see effects given, especially in, in health, so some of the consequences are, are much further down the line. You know, chronic health conditions arise from a lifetime of exposure to health risks and health damaging conditions. So, you know, if you do something about child poverty now, some effects you will see pretty much immediately. But other things, uh, you know, there are studies that show that childhood conditions still explain some of the health variation when people are 70 years old. So this is, you know, it is a really complex question to sort of say, well, what is the one most important thing? So for me to bring about lasting change, there needs to be an appreciation of how those different parts of the system hang together and then to generate sort of sufficient sustained movement across many parts of the system at the same time. And for that, if we need large, powerful alliances across many parts of society who make it their business to tackle inequalities, which can't just be at the health policy level. It needs to be much wider than that. It's across government, but it also is, is a part of commercial actors. It's uh, what, what private sectors, what the public sector, what the third sector organizations do and how they can all play in together. And the other thing we need to focus is, is, is the future. So I've talked about what currently are the main drivers of health in the UK, but this will almost certainly change as the climate emergency starts hitting wealthy countries in the same way as it now does already with poorer countries. And I think the first thing we'll see is not necessarily the health impact from climate change, but from our attempts to at climate mitigation and adaptation. The way we we, we approach net zero is going to have a major impact on inequalities, I think. And my concern is that the longer we leave it to act, the more we'll be in that reactive emergency mode rather than thinking ahead and have some well-aligned, well-considered strategic action that would lead to a just transition and, and therefore also minimize the chances of, of adverse health consequences. And I guess we see that no more starkly than at the moment with the energy crisis and the cost of living and the huge increase in energy bills, obviously that's driven by a variety of different factors, some of them short term, some of them policy changes, but it's almost like a sign of what's to come. And this is this is just what's going to be the norm in many ways. And I think we'll maybe come on to in a second some of the questions around sustainability and here interested to hear a project that you're that you're working on around that. But just picking up again on the point about the importance of the system linking together and how it's it's the policy angles, it's the health angle, it's the it's the business, it's the economy, etc. But one of the challenges is that in some ways it's it's easy. I don't mean that in a flippant way, but it's easy to talk about the system or the prevention piece actually getting all of these political business society things lined up is really challenging in the implementation gap. And I know that you've from a variety of projects working in that about trying to help policymakers and wider actors come together to try and solve these problems. I mean, what gives you hope? Like where are the areas you can see progress being made or what the barriers are and, and what needs to change in the actual implementation of this prevention agenda? I mean, often what we get told is that budgets are scarce and we, we can't do it because we don't have the money. And I think the more people understand just how expensive it is to keep fixing things, 
the, the better we'll all be off. So, you know, fixing ill health is extraordinarily expensive, the healthcare, but it's spiraling out of control, as, as we know. And, you know, there's real concern of sustain, uh, about the sustainability of that, but also fixing the consequences of poverty is really expensive. And people who try to put price tags on prevention efforts usually come up with with estimates such as a pound spent on prevention saves three pounds in cure. So it's not not that we can't afford it. I'd say generally I'm a big believer in what Catherine Trebek from the Wellbeing Economy Alliance uh, terms failure demand, so that we spend more and more on fixing things, criminal justice costs, NHS costs, social care costs, and so on, and that we just need to find ways to spend this money on better doing things better the first time around. So designing in the right outcomes in, in a much better, cleverer way, even if the startup costs there are much higher. For example, I see, you know, we're still building houses that are not carbon neutral. We know full well that we'll have to do expensive retrofits in the future and that that's probably going to be more difficult than just designing them in the first place. If we leave families in, in poverty, we know that the children will have a much higher risk for poor outcomes, including poor physical and mental health outcomes, and there are costs associated with that. So it's it's not that we don't have the budget, but it's the way economic and political incentives work that need to change. The short-termism, the siloed budgets, the lack of political will or maybe agency, unhelpful organizational structures and sort of difficulties in generating real joined-up action, even where people are actively trying and have been trying for a while. I think part of the problem is that uh, for prevention is that you can't ever win. This is known as a prevention paradox. If prevention does not work, then you get into trouble for wasting monies because uh, the problem clearly still persists. But if your prevention does work amazingly well and the problem does not exist, then you get into trouble for, for wasting money on problems that are just not there. So it's just really, really difficult to make an economic case for prevention because the counterfactuals are so difficult to get hold of. That's absolutely fascinating. I hadn't actually thought of it in that context, but you, you're entirely you're entirely right. And it was a really interesting thing around the way that economists evaluate projects is we discount the future. So we actually, things that happen further down the line, we value less than today. And for things like climate change and prevention, that becomes a real challenge. And just picking up on that point about climate change. So you're part of an exciting new initiative the Gallant Project, run out of the University of Glasgow, looking at Glasgow as a, as a living lab around this whole world of sustainability. Can you talk us through just what that actually is trying to do and how that relates into this whole debate about tackling inequalities and improving outcomes for people? Yeah, certainly I'll try. This is our latest baby and we just started the grant in February this year. And like all babies, it's already trying to claim every waking minute and many of the nighttime too. Gallant is a, a 10 million five-year NERC-funded project that's led by Jamie Tony, a professor of environmental science and climate science, and Marion Scott, a professor of environmental statistics, and I myself are co-leads in the, in the project. So our aim is to support Glasgow to become a climate-resilient city, working through a unique new city-university partnership approach. We're using a whole systems approach to climate resilience with a strong focus on making a just transition. And that's where the inequality aspect comes in. For Glasgow, it is just really, really important that it can't be on the back of creating more inequalities. And, and that's something that the city's been stressing from the start. And obviously, that's where, where my key interest is. 
We've chosen the Donut Economics Framework as our guide to our work there. With our Glasgow city partners, have chosen five particular environmental challenges to focus on. So one's flood mitigation or flood risk mitigation. One's halting biodiversity loss. Another is regenerating the vast amounts of derelict and polluted lands in Glasgow. One's active travel and inclusive mobility. And the final one is clean energy solutions. So there are cross-cutting work strands that bind all this together. And what the one I lead is on systems transformation. And then we also have, have work going on on trying to get better data for decision support and also a big piece on community engagement because, we're, again, we subscribe very strongly to the, well, to be, being an inclusive project and in, in inclusive in our work practices to not do something to people, but but have people inform us of what, what it is that is needed in order to, to get to a just transition. So we're all super excited to get going. We're just uh, recruiting PhD studentships are out for advert and the posts are out for advert. And we're running our first Glasgow City Donut Economics Workshop in two weeks' time. So watch this space. I think there'll be interesting things coming out in the near future. Yeah, so it promises to be a, yeah, a really exciting and fascinating project. And for listeners, you can find more about the project on the University of Glasgow's website, just search for Gallant, and you'll find out the details of the various work streams that Petra was talking through. If I could ask you just one final question, Petra, a personal question about your research journey and, and how you got into all of this stuff and your background in, in public health, but you have to work with economists like me and <laughs> environmental science people. So can you maybe just explain just how you how do you straddle that where you're clearly working in fields where Training is quite different, language is quite different, experiences are quite different, but you're bringing a completely different perspective to that. That must create lots of opportunities, but it must create its own challenges too. Yes, that's right. I started out wanting to be a clinical psychologist, but when I got to the later stages of training where I was actually working with patients, I felt I was just trying to fix mental health problems that were often caused by difficult contexts and living circumstances that people found themselves in. And basically that was just feeling really powerless to do anything about. So um, we'd make some progress and then I'd send them back to the same situation that made them ill in the first place. So, you know, when I moved then first into psychology research, but sort of increasingly it turned to policy and more into the public health field because I felt that's really where I can make a, make a difference at the population level where we think about prevention and what can be done. I started with alcohol policy as a, as a, as a key area of interest, things like alcohol taxation and minimum pricing policies. And that was all really good and interesting and got me involved in thinking about complexity and systems because, you know, it's not just raising the price. There are commercial interests. There is the way alcohol consumption is embedded in our everyday lives and routines and how that shapes the degree to which consumers would change what they do. So it sort of started to get me to think about economic drivers and policy constraints in, in terms of what can and can't be done and what kind of policies might work in which contexts. And I guess in the final years, when I worked at Sheffield University, I've moved further and further upstream to the causes of the causes so rather than health behaviors, really thinking about the wider determinants of health. And it doesn't, doesn't take very long until you get to the economic drivers of health as one of the key important bits of the jigsaw. And I guess that's, and that was mainly in response to realization that most health is not actually lost in what we consider to be 
what the people can affect who've got health in their title. So that's what got me to work with the people who work in the treasury or people who are interested in housing the people, whatever. And as you say, there are interesting bits. I mean, you learn every single day in your <laughs> of your life, and that's that's exhilarating and exciting. It also means that you're forever not quite sure of your ground because it's so multidisciplinary that not one person holds all of the information needed. So it's a very much a team science approach where you need to work with many, many people who, as you say, have got very different languages, different experiences, different things that they know and can bring to the table. But it's it's where I want to be for me, that working in teams with so many different people is just uh, the, the way in which we can tackle those complex, big challenges, and whether that's health inequalities or the, the climate change issues that we're facing or many, many other big societal challenges. I think that, that's the way we'll need to need to go. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you, Petra. I'm sure we could keep this conversation going on for a lot longer. I will ask you if you can come back and give us an update on Gallant with Jamie Tony, who we've had on before, to talk about Gallant. It'd be great to get you both on to give us an update on progress in due course. Um, Absolutely. I'd be delighted. Okay, brilliant. Well, we'll hold you to that. So until then, thank you very much, Petra. Thanks, Graham. Bye.